Hello and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bangura. On this podcast, I talk all things music. I talk about my own experiences in music as an opera singer, and we talk a lot of music research. I'm currently a music PhD student in music theory at the University of Michigan. So I read about music, I write about music, and I think about music a lot, and you get to hear all of those music-related thoughts on the show. Today on the show, I have Dr. Teresa Reed, who is currently the Dean of the School of Music at the University of Louisville. We talk all about her early experiences in music, which were really heavily influenced by her involvement in the Black church. We talk about her time at Indiana University, where she received her PhD in music theory. And we chat all about her scholarship and the books that she has published, particularly her first book that was originally published in 2002, The Holy Profane, Religion in Black Popular Music. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. I am so excited today to talk to my guest all about her background, all about her scholarship, her experiences in music. So today we are talking to Dr. Teresa Reed. Teresa, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Lydia, for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so I'm so excited. Um, I I normally start off the show with just briefly talking about how I got introduced to the guests or became familiar with their work. So uh, we met at the Theorizing African-American Music Conference this summer, which, wow, that's just, it it was just such a monumental time when I look back, back at all the people that I got to meet at that conference and all the connections that I made. It was just such a valuable time. So I look back on it really fondly. How was your experience at the conference? I think I share your sentiment. It was uh, transformative and uh, it was the first time in my professional life that I'd been under the same roof with uh, more than myself and just maybe one or two others who were Black people uh, interested in music theory or people in general interested in Black music and music theory. Mm. So it uh, it was all of what you describe. I shared that excitement about that really monumental moment. Yeah, and it was it was so great to meet you uh, and to just hear about your experiences in music. Also, there was that um, you were uh, participating on the keynote panel, which was great. There was a question about music education and you ate it up. I was like, give it to him. Yes, Teresa, I was in the, in the audience like, yes. <laughs> so good. You're very kind. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm I'm just so happy that I got to to meet you and become familiar with your work there. Um, so let's jump in and talk about you and your personal background in music. So as far as where you're from and the music that was happening in the place where you're from, um, if you're from a musical family, if you have other family members that are musical, and then when you uh, started to, you know, sing, play, write music, or, you know, interact with music as a kid. Thank you so much, Lydia. I fell in love with music in the Black Pentecostal Church. Mm-hmm. And for those who may or may not be familiar with that environment, that culture, um, to to give you a brief description of that, I never... Uh, 
saw as a kid in elementary school, a, a note of written music in that church. I remember that there were hymnals uh, in the back pockets of the pews, but we never looked at them. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything done in that church environment was done by ear, was improvisation, collaboration, listening, responding, uh, learning through mentorship, through trial and error. That was my that was my musical birth. That was my musical, my formative musical upbringing. And that was my experience for, um, you know, really the, 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 the time from the time I was, a, a, I guess, the time I was born until um, I got to high school. I didn't learn to read music until I was a high school student. Mm -hmm. So while I was learning to read music, um, I continued to really live in that Black Pentecostal tradition, uh, specifically the Church of God in Christ, where people uh, engage with music as a spiritual practice, as a cultural practice, and it's one that uh, is gained through oral tradition primarily, or in my case, uh, exclusively. And it is something that uh, is um, impactful on more levels that I can really explain. So I fell in love with music in that environment and decided uh, probably before I was in eighth grade that I wanted to do music somehow, some way for the rest of my life as, as sort of my, 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 main, um, my main activity. Um, I then, as you know, naive and very inexperienced and, and young folks do, you, you, you do what makes sense to you. So my parents weren't, we weren't the kind of family that had a lot of uh, disposable income to give each kid um, all of the lessons and, and, you know, things on the wish list that they wanted. And so um, my, uh, my thought was to take everything in high school that was offered. And so I did band and I did orchestra and I did choir and I did piano, all the free stuff that you can get in high school. I did all of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, at the same time, I was uh, getting the best education possible um, collaborating with musicians in at Open Door Church of God in Christ, where people were virtuosos in that culture. And I learned from them. I was scolded and encouraged and critiqued by that community. And mm -hmm. that's sort of where I, um, that that's where I, I honed my skill and uh, got enough of um, a skill in the classical repertoire, if you will, in high school to audition and to major in music. But what I didn't know or even have the um, perspective to think through was how the college experience was either going to harmonize with, no pun intended, or uh, create tension with this background that exactly. was much at the core of who I was as a musician. I was, you know, I was, I was 17, 18. I, all I knew was that to be better, you know, my, my assumption was that to be better, I would have to go to college and I'd have to learn some things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I majored in music. Um, my uh, instrument was saxophone. But, you know, if you're in the Church of God in Christ, you you do kind of a lot of things. And so I, you know, I also play piano and I also sang. And um, uh, you are very good at, at improvising and listening. So the things that were difficult, difficult for my peers who were very much uh, dependent on notated music were very easy for me. So oral skills was a piece of cake because I did oral skills uh, every time I went to church. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> uh, so I, uh, with, you know, saxophone is my primary instrument. I got a degree. I then went to graduate school and probably 
um, from uh, my, I guess, junior, senior year in undergrad and throughout graduate school, I was looking for black people in mm-hmm. the academy. Um, I found Scott Joplin as an undergrad, probably the only African-American that I studied in all of undergrad. And so when I went to graduate school and was applying for um, an assistantship to go there, you have to write a statement uh, about what you plan to do if you get granted that assistantship. And I was very clear. I wanted to find people of color and women. And I wanted to do something in my life to bring those artists out of the shadows and into the mainstream of what people do and talk about when they study music. I didn't know what that meant <laughs> when I was that age, but um, you know, I, I finished a master's degree and then I went to Indiana University as a PhD student in music theory with minors in uh, music history and literature and African-American music. And there again, I was looking for myself, but was delighted to uh, meet people like Portia Maltzby, who was in uh, African-American studies and was a major professor and that the minor that I pursued there and came to know through IU that there was this whole world of African-American music that did live in the academic sphere that was completely hidden to me until I had gotten to that point in my life in education. So I did my dissertation on, it was an analysis of music by Florence Price, her sonata minor. And I um, was, you know, first of all, thrilled to know that Florence Price existed, <laughs> that and then that she wasn't the only one, that there were yeah. other other folks. There were, exactly. there were people of color and women who were writing in the concert tradition. And um, I never felt any of the value judgment that was um, sort of this tacit assumption uh, between, you know, African-American music being crude and underdeveloped and all of that. I always felt that there was virtuosity in my background that, that my peers who were, um, uh, of the classical tradition had no idea about. And, and so I always felt that there was a blind spot there that was at the root of those value judgments. Yes. So it didn't bother me. Um, but I felt like something needed to be done about it. And, you know, so I went the typical path of, of, um, of you know, getting a, a a position as an assistant professor and then associate and and full and I did you know administrative things and so um, thirty five or so years later here I am uh, right now I'm the uh, dean of the school of music at the University of Louisville and I'm still learning and growing and and um, I'm happy to see that from my vantage point now things are very different than mm. they were for me as uh, a black woman, an undergraduate in an environment where African-American music was uh, simply not on the radar. So I'm mm. grateful for the change that's happened there. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, and we get to reap the benefits of you know your, your distinguished career. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we certainly share a lot of experiences as far as I was the only Black woman, there were a few Black men in my undergrad, but I was the only Black woman in the entire school of music during my undergrad. So not even just voice, which is what I studied, but the whole school. And I never had a Black professor during my undergrad. I had one professor of color who was from Mexico. So yeah, I, you know, I'm originally from Arizona. So, you know, <laughs> we know the landscape. We know. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, it's, it's not been a field that has had a large representation of people of color. And I think um, Phil Yule said um, and has been saying what 
many of us have been feeling and thinking, but have not had uh, space or words to articulate. And that is the fact that there is a, a value judgment about non-European musics that's mm -hmm. baked into the way music theory is done. And we saw that in the infamous issue of Journal of Shankarian Studies. Yes. Um, and uh, in, in a very clear and painful way, um, anything that might have been suspected about the way the field views uh, people of color was confirmed mm -hmm. in that uh, unfortunate in that unfortunate issue. Um, but that also just sort of bespeaks a kind of one of the ironies of being an academic discipline where, you know, you are supposed to have the habit of mind that craves and seeks new knowledge and craves new perspectives and collects different experiences and synthesizes points of view that are different than your own. And one thing that has not happened in uh, the music academy has one thing that's not happened is that that skill of inquiry has been muted and stunted by lots of uh, lots of assumptions that are grounded, quite frankly, in uh, assumptions about the superiority of certain musics over others. Yeah, and those those axioms, those assumptions, paralyze our ability as scholars to actually be scholars who mm. encounter materials with openness of mind rather than with assumptions about what might be inferior, indeed too inferior for us to uh, waste our time on. Um, so, you know, we could talk for hours about how that is evident in our um, in our field, but I, I think those conversations are, are happening and it's, it's healthy that they are happening. I would also say that there is a very human fear that goes with the prospect of encountering knowledge that really is new after one has spent many years carving out a place in the profession, earning credentials, you know, arriving. And then mm. to discover after arriving that there are things that you still that that you don't know don't know yeah that's kind of scary and so i think one of the conversations that probably should happen in the academy is how we deal with that fear how we transcend that fear and still behave true to our calling as scholars anyway mm, all right yes. so i i don't know um i don't know a particular analytical approach that doesn't mean that i shouldn't learn it i don't mm. know a particular repertoire that doesn't mean that I shouldn't learn it. I don't know a certain way of doing music. I don't know, uh, uh, so I don't know certain bodies of composers. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't learn it. So what's happened in our field, I think, very often is that we have a the sense of arrival that is is really stagnation, mm. and wow. that's something to that that's something that we probably should reckon with at some level. Yeah. Wow. I, I also just recorded an episode with uh, Susan McClary and something that she said, you know, throughout her career is that she still gets her ideas from the classroom, right? Like she still gets her ideas from teaching, from what her students are currently engaging in. And so really leaning into 
you know, new music, the music that's happening now, um, and the the theories that are happening now, and what your students are experiencing as young musicians, um, can really keep you in touch with how ideas in the field are developing and evolving. And so if you, yeah, if you do get stuck in that, like, well, I've written my books, and I've done the thing, and that's it, <laughs> which I, you know, I suppose it's easy to do once you're a tenured professor and maybe the stakes don't feel as high and you know so that 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 was just so amazing for her to to say um at this stage in her career that she's still getting new ideas and still continuing to evolve her ideas and that specifically going hand in hand with her engaging in the classroom yeah for sure uh you know as i think about the um the, the shanker journal and the comments that were published in that journal, perhaps what was most offensive to me were not the blatantly racist comments, but it was the conspicuous absence of curiosity mm. that troubled me perhaps more than anything else. I mean, by the time you get to be my age, racism doesn't surprise you. <laughs> You've been there, done that, you know? So hearing people say and write racist things, that's not something that necessarily you know impacts me because I you know how many times has that happened I mean I, I need more hands than I have to count in mm -hmm. a given month <laughs> that that <laughs> kind of thing uh, is likely to happen depending on who you tend to listen to I mean when it's in your field it does sort of awaken you in a different way but my point is that the the conspicuous absence of curiosity was perhaps what saddened me most about uh, what our colleagues expressed in that issue. And that therein lies the failing, therein lies the failure. It's the, the inability to crave what is unfamiliar. Mm. And I think that's our successes. Our success at teacher, as teachers is really in our ability to awaken lifelong curiosity in our students. And so when, you know, when I read through those, those if you want to call them articles, I was saddened that somehow along the way, if it was ever learned, um, if if the value of curiosity was ever learned, was clearly forgotten. And right. I think that's where we begin to right some of these wrongs is to awaken and reaffirm the value of curiosity. Yeah, or even seeing that curiosity as like a threat, right? That that curiosity mm -hmm. is actually there's a hostility almost to learning about new repertoire, learning about these new theories, because then perhaps you have to rethink your own standing in the field, your own positionality, the positionality of your research. And so like, yeah, I can, I can, you know, that hostility was so boldly on display. It's embarrassing, but, you know, <laughs> as far as um, what we can still do, to, as you're saying, um, awaken that curiosity in our students and make sure that we maintain our sense of curiosity and our passion for learning that keeps the field evolving past sure. nonsense like that. So yes, thank you for sharing. Um, I would love to hear a bit about uh, your experience now as an administrator and how that kind of, you know, how that work in comparison to your time as a professor, um, how you're feeling about administration? For sure, yeah. 
have had multiple administrative roles, none of which I applied for. So <laughs> they which, just you need know, you. We need I, you. I don't know about all that. I just think that, <laughs> you know, first of all, administration is always a labor of love, mm. always, because there, there are many thankless moments and there are many uh, rewarding moments to be sure, but it's, it's a labor of love at the end of the day. I mean, there was, there was not one day as a, a young woman that I woke up and thought, Hey, I think I'd like to be an administrator. Not one time. So <laughs> it was always an invitation and an opportunity to serve and a need to serve. So my own administrative path, the very first thing I did in the Academy as an administrator that I was the director of the African-American studies certificate program. So mm. I was at the university of Tulsa and we didn't have an FM studies major or minor, but we had a certificate program. And so I directed that, um, which was a great experience because the inter African-American studies is intrinsically interdisciplinary. And so you get to engage with colleagues from other fields and that's, which is always healthy, always a yes. good thing. To do. Yeah. And then I was a department chair, uh, and, uh, and then I was an associate dean. Um, I was two flavors of an associate dean. So it was associate dean phase one and associate dean phase two. Um, and uh, I said I was a department chair. I was actually a director of a school of music. So I'm, I was doing then the same thing I'm doing now as a dean, but only in a, in a, a smaller size, but the same work. And so now I'm a dean. And I think the the greatest joy of being administrator is making making supporting ses, su supporting the success of your students and colleagues and 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 your staff you know supporting the success of the people in your sphere is really the only reason anybody should get into administration mm. um anyone is anyone who is deluded into thinking that you know administration rewards you with glory and power um if that's your delusion don't do it <laughs> Hmm. Um, it's really an opportunity to serve on steroids. I'll put it that way. Um, because, you know, you're, you're in this position to, um, you know, if, if you want to take credit for things that go well, you can, but that's usually not accurate because you have a lot of people yeah. on your team that, uh, make various pieces of the success, uh, a possibility. I could not do what I do without the team that I have. Um, mm. and, you know, being alert to that and aware of that and, uh, always being in a position to honor the gifts and talents and perspectives that others bring to your work, that, that kind of humility is a, um, is absolutely essential. So, you know, I walk into my building every day knowing that I can't have a good experience without the person who manages and cleans the facility. I can't have a good experience without the advisors who advise our students or mm. the, uh, the the person who does the media or the you know the person who comes in and tunes the pianos, the people, certainly the faculty who who teach and love and care for our students. Um, my, my assistant who keeps my calendar. I mean, there are so many roles that are indispensable that make my job possible. So I, I, you know, I think administration is, is about honoring those people who make up your team, who contribute every day to the success. And, uh, and, and then, you know, administration is also about taking responsibility, even for things that aren't really your fault. Mm. It's it, it just part of the job is just taking responsibility. I mean, at the end of the day, the buck 
stops with the person who is um, who who is the in the administrative role. Um, and part of that is sort of finding solutions or facilitating the search for solutions and, and finding ways to move forward that sometimes work, sometimes they don't work. And you, through trial and error, figure out better ways of doing things. But there again, that never happens. Um, that That's not monophony. That's always... That's always some really good counterpoint. A lot of people <laughs> bringing a lot of different voices into mm. uh, into those exchanges. Um, one of the rewarding things for me as a woman of color being in an administrative role is that I, I, I bring this perspective to my work because I understand what it means to be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't had I haven't had an experience. I mean, everybody's got trauma. You know, we could all compare a trauma and see whose trauma weighs the most, but that's not my point here. We all got a story, but I think the experiences that I've had put me in a position to make sure that others who are under my, in my sphere of influence have a better experience than the one that I had. Mm. So I notice things perhaps differently because I am black and because I am female than I would if I were not. And you know, as an administrator, I'm able to, um, I'm in a position to make some differences and that that's rewarding. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, along those same lines, I would love to know, I've started this little, which I love this little advice segment (laughs) to the show. Um, and I would, I would love to know, you know, based on your experiences as a black woman in the academy, specifically in music academia, doing this work and, and moving into administration, um, if you have any pieces of advice, words of wisdom, um, for young PhDs, especially if they're black and or women, um, in terms of, research, developing a dissertation topic um, that you'll be successful in completing, um, and in terms of uh, beginning to teach for the first time? For sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I think it's um, very important to do what you're passionate about. Mm. You know, I was a PhD student in the early 90s, and, um, you know, finished in 97, started as a student in 1990, but, you know, defended and all of that and did all of my corrections to my dissertation by 1997. And um, my dissertation was uh, on music by Florence Price. And part of that was very personal because I was looking for myself in the academy and um, I was rarely found. And mm. so it seemed to me to be a waste of an opportunity to not do my dissertation on a black woman mm. and bring that uh, bring that identity into into this work. Now, so that's thing one, I would say, whether it's a dissertation or a master's thesis or you know the books that you write, somehow they've got to be personal. Mm. Somehow they've got to be passionate. They have to be relevant, I think. The the best work is done when it's relevant to your own experience. Um so I, I, that's, that's part one of what I'll say. And now regarding the PhD work, part two of what I'll say is it's all about stamina. Mm. If you just make up your mind (laughs) that you will finish no matter what, (laughs) (laughs) then you will. 
But if if you have any if you have any space in your thinking that allows for the possibility that you may not finish, then you are your own undoing. Just decide that you're gonna finish, kind of no matter what. Now, no matter what is big and broad and and uncertain and can entail many many things. And it's it's kind of like you know um, thinking about a a commitment that is long term that is that is, is a permanent commitment. You know, I, ideally back in the day, you know, you, you, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, to death do you part. You, you kind of have to think that way about your, your dissertation and finishing this work. And you have to develop a, a thick skin capable of absorbing lots of critique mm-hmm. and framing that critique, not as attacks, but as gifts. So when you ever you get a critique, it's a gift. It's it it sometimes gifts hurt. Um, <laughs> gifts hurt, and it it hurts to find out that um, you know as I did, as we all did, it's hurt to find out that something you wrote was less than wonderful. Mm. But that's the best thing that can possibly happen to you, when someone cares enough about you to insist that you not settle for less than your full potential. That's somebody who really cares. And mm-hmm. they're probably going to say some tough things. So um, there comes a point in the writing of the dissertation where re- it really is just 100% stamina. There's a point that comes where you really don't care about that topic anymore. So there, there's some distinct phases. And I think people have written about this. You know, the first phase of writing your dissertation is just excitement. Oh my God, you are going to write this groundbreaking treatise that's going to change the field and change yes. the world and yes, listeners. global Look out. and all of that stuff. I mean, here I, yeah, here I come. <laughs> and then you get into, so that lasts, uh, you know, a couple months maybe. And then you get into the meat of the work and, you know, you, you find out that this really does take energy. And then you get into this phase of the work where it's less about the topic and it's more about your ability to stick with it. <laughs> you, that 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 honeymoon phase of this you know wonderful thing you were out to show or prove or whatever that honeymoon phase uh meets with some reality yeah because you are uh, you're starting to get you know maybe a little bit tired it may drag on for longer than you would like and then you know right before right before you're 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 done i think very often people have the experience of just downright disillusionment what in the mm. heck am I doing and why does it matter? It really does not matter. And you really have to fight those. You really have to fight these feelings of whether or not this matters at all. You have to tell yourself it, it does, it does matter. So there comes this point where you, you go from loving your topic to actually literally hating your topic. <laughs> <laughs> and if you expect those phases, mm. so this is, this is what I'm telling you and, and other doctoral students, if you expect those phases, then you can plan for them and they won't take you under. You should, you should probably go somewhere in your calendar and your phone and you know, that countdown feature, mm. that, that app that you can get yeah, where you can count down to a particular event. You know, if, if that app were around when I was a doctoral student, I would have used that and I would have loved for someone to have told me, okay, set this out about eight months. And the event you're looking for is disillusionment. All right. And when you get to disillusionment, have a plan, right? Mm. Have a plan. And so part of that plan will involve some self-care. 
you know, part of writing is getting away from what you wrote. Mm. Space and time to think through your first or second or third draft of anything. Yeah. And space and time work wonders. But if you're, you know, if you're grinding away and grinding away and you don't give yourself space and time and self-care, then you're you're really just um, headed on a fast track to burnout. So if you plan for disillusionment, put it on your countdown app. It's coming. <laughs> then you'll be able to you'll be able to navigate it and you'll see mm-hmm. it as a normal part of the process. And and then you you just get to a point where you just want to finish mm. <laughs> by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. You just want to finish. I mean, one of the experiences I had in my defense was I had written this dissertation and one of the members of my committee said in so many words, well, why didn't you write about like this whole other topic? <laughs> and I said, you gotta be kidding me. So <laughs> right you I, I am i am at the end of what i what i think is the end of yeah this what and you're asking me why didn't i write about something completely different no no nope. right so i don't remember what my response was i believe it was very <laughs> respectful uh-huh. um but it was it was a very respectful version of I did not write that. I wrote this and that might be my next book maybe or something like that. <laughs> but you, you do, you get to that point where you just want to get done. So if mm. you, so my advice is write about something you're passionate about, expect to go through these phase, phases, uh, which include fatigue and disillusionment and plan for those phases and just decide that you're committed no matter what and you'll finish. Oh, listeners, it's a word. It hurts, but she's right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear, again, continuing with our little advice segment as far as um, experience for early teachers, just because mm-hmm. I definitely last semester was navigating a whole lot of anxiety around mm-hmm. like I had never really, you know, identified uh, as an anxious person or as someone who had ever struggled with like imposter syndrome. But it was the first time that I had suddenly felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Or do yeah. I, do I know what a credential six, four is? How do I expect like suddenly feeling like, oh, maybe I'm not cut out to do this and feeling like the stakes were so much higher now that there are students actually depending on your ability to, you know, accurately, clearly disseminate knowledge. So um, any advice for just like, getting you know navigating your first couple of years of teaching oh for sure oh yeah I had many times when I crashed and burned <laughs> oh I is that not, true absolutely I didn't start I learned I learned on the job I learned how to teach and I learned by I learned by you know failing I learned by making mistakes and I learned by being embarrassed and um what I've discovered that works is that you treat teaching just like you treat a performance. You rehearse, you practice, you prepare. Before you go into the classroom, you know how every minute is gonna be spent. And so that's more painstaking early on, but the longer and the more you do it, the more rehearsed you get at it, then you you create your lesson plan to have more planned in the period than you can reasonably cover. And here is how that protects you. It always ensures that you'll have a little extra to 
um, already in your, your plan for the next class period in case you don't get to those 25 things. But it also keeps you from having dead space in the classroom. Mm. Dead space is your worst enemy because then the other interactions and conversations and things can quickly go off the rails. I mean, you walk into the classroom talking about thinking that you're going to talk about six, four chords and you haven't really planned to fill that hour up with that topic. Plus a little extra asterisk with plus a little extra, then it, it really takes one tangent of a question to completely throw you off course. And before you know it, your, your time is wasted with, some other kind of engagement that really doesn't get at the objectives that you set for the day. Mm -hmm. And I had that experience enough times to know, I always walk into the classroom with not just, you know, 50 minutes where it could be many class periods or 50 minutes, I'm assuming mm -hmm. for most folks. Um, I, you walk into the classroom with an hour and a half worth of material. And that way you've got more than you need to fill up the period you've prepared and you've thought through the kinds of questions that will be asked. And you've thought through the kinds of answers that you will give. Now, you will not always have answers to everything. And the answer to that is either, that's a great question. Let me look that up and get back to you next time. And I don't see any problem with teachers being vulnerable, honest, open, and transparent. Mm -hmm. Many times I've told my students, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know everything. Or another opportunity is, that's a great question. Why don't you research that and tell me what you think at next, next class period? So you can also engage students in being their own investigators and bringing their thoughts back to the classroom for discussion. But what you what you want to do, if if you're well prepared, that solves probably 80 percent of any discomfort you're going to experience in the classroom. So you treat it like a you treat it like a performance that requires some planning and some rehearsal, a little bit of time management. Right. So if you're going to start off, it's always a good idea to start off with a few minutes of review. Walk into the class and engage students with questions about what you learned the last time. Sort mm. of get the blood flowing and get the brain working again. Get some interaction happening. The, 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 probably the most difficult setup for a class for class time is to walk in lecturing. Don't do that. Walk in interacting. You know, get students to interact. All right, so let's transition um, to talking a bit about your research, Teresa. So, um, if you could, for the listeners, give kind of an overview of your scholarship, of the books that you've published, and then uh, we can get a bit more in detail. Okay, for sure. Thank you so very much, uh, Lydia. Well, I've lived in multiple worlds as a scholar from pretty much the beginning. And uh, so the overwhelming majority of my publication is in African-American music. Um, I have also been uh, drawn into the world of religious studies, although I have zero credentials in that. And um, some of my work has just sort of invited me to address racial issues, although I have zero credentials in that. Um, so by training, I'm a, I'm a music theorist with uh, doctoral minors in music history and literature and African-American studies. 
And uh, my first book was The Holy Profane, Religion in Black Popular Music, uh, which is now uh, an oldie. It came out uh, in, originally in 2002, uh, 2003 in that hump University of Kentucky Press. And it was, um, it was that book that I wrote when I was pursuing tenure. Um, as, a, as a music theorist, I really love the pedagogical component of, of music theory. I love students, I love teaching, I love engaging with them in the ways that will be most meaningful, meaningful and most impactful for them as they develop their, their artistry and they develop their analytical muscle. Um, in terms of a book that made sense for me to write, I did not feel compelled to follow the, the, the well-worn path of the kinds of things that are, are or at that time, were the typical fare of uh, music theory study. I really wanted to, um, if I was going to invest that time in a book, write something that was uh, personally relevant and something that I felt was uh, going to really fill a gap in in the literature. And in order to do that, I had to free myself from the categorization that was implicit in the credential that I had. And so um, mm. I don't I don't really bother. I didn't bother too much with what people would call that. You know, is that music history? Is that ethnomusicology? Is that you know, what is that? I didn't bother with that question. I just started writing. And yeah. uh, what came from that was um, The Holy Profane, which looks at uh, religious sentiment in Black popular music. And it really develops a well-known fact um, that Black people had talked about and acknowledged for many, many years before anybody actually wrote about it, which is that Black secular artists really develop and and hone their skill and their craft in in black religious settings. Mm -hmm. uh, those popular secular artists got their start in the church. Uh, the, the those who were the you know the architects of of rhythm and blues and and the forms of uh, black popular music that evolved from that. And so I looked at that uh, through the lens of of what folks were talking about in this music. And interestingly, that that book, which um, folks are still reading, um, does not present me as a music theorist in the conventional way that music theorists are presented in, you know, in the scholarly landscape. Yeah. And, and I've been OK with that. I've not felt compelled to um, to to go down the path of writing a more, quote unquote, conventional theory treatise to really prove anything to anyone. I really needed to write something that was expressive of my own uh, curiosity mm. and, and my own identity as, uh, as a musician and particularly a music musician of color from a particular, um, uh, a particular background. Um, my second book was uh, The Jazz Life of Dr. Billy Taylor, which fell to me in a very strange <laughs> way. Um, um, the, the story about that one was that uh, a a New York Times bestselling author who shall remain unnamed out of the blue called me in uh, 2000, I guess, four, 2005. And I was actually in my office at the University of Tulsa, headed out of the door for the weekend and my phone rang back in the days when phone phones actually rang. And, it, you know, <laughs> that moment when you're departing for the weekend, you think, should I pick this up or should I not? And so I picked the phone up 
And the person on the other end said, hello, I'm so-and-so. Um, may I speak to Teresa Reed? And I, I, I knew that name and I knew that person's work and I thought it was a prank call and I hung up. Um, the person no. called back again. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I did. Who does that, right? Uh, because no one knew me from a can of paint. I mean, I, I knew I had written the Holy Profane. I knew, if, you know, a few hundred folks had written it and it, it had read it and it was in some libraries. But there is no way this guy, you know, would not would, you would, hanging up. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally hung up. And then the phone rang again. So the person called me back <laughs> and repeated that um, that he was who he said he was. And I said, um, wow. Um, uh, you're the My bad. Of, of X and he said yes and I said why on earth are you calling me well he happened to be one of the you know 30 people at that time who had read uh, or, or a few more who had read the holy profane and said um, I've been approached by Dr. Dr. Taylor who was in his mid-80s at the time uh, to write his, uh, to, to, to ghost write his memoir. And I just don't have time, but I read your book and I thought you'd be the perfect person to wow. ghost write Dr. Taylor's autobiography. And um, this person really didn't know me aside from, you know, that book. And I said, well, I've never written a memoir before. That's not the writing I do. I write, you know, I'm a, I, I do scholarly writing. I do research and synthesize evidence from sources and make arguments that way. I don't write people's stories. And he said, well, I think you should, I think you can do it. <laughs> and by the way, here's Dr. Taylor's phone number. And I go, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, you mean the Dr. Billy Taylor? I'm oh supposed to call him. And the guy said, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I was, yeah, it was completely out of the 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 blue, and so this is so iconic. Oh my god! <laughs> and so I called, uh, you know, little unknown me in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I called Doctor Billy, the Doctor Billy Taylor, and to my amazement, stunned amazement, he was actually expecting my call, and it was it was him. Nobody sounds like Doctor Taylor except Doctor Taylor, right? Um, uh, at that time, of course. And so, long story short, um, he and I. Um, developed a very close relationship for the next several years and worked on his uh, worked on his autobiography and the way that that went because Dr. Taylor did not do technology he had he had two landline phones he did not have a, a an email account <laughs> he did not have a cell phone no. he was completely old school and so it was very common for me to be on the phone with him and his other landline phone would ring and he'd say hang on a minute he'd answer that thing it was usually somebody inviting him to come receive some honorary doctorate or something somewhere <laughs> anyway so um it was uh it was phone calls phone conversations with dr taylor and um i recorded every single one of them uh and uh I would ask him an open-ended question and he would just start talking and I captured all that on, on audio tape. And then I'd go back and I'd, I'd, I'd put that into a, a, narr a readable narrative. And then I'd send it, send to him uh, installments of that book in brightly colored binders so that we could keep track of what we were working on. So I, you know, I FedEx him a binder and, and then we'd have a call scheduled and I'd say, okay, Dr. Taylor, we're working out of the orange binder today. And so he'd grab the orange binder and uh, we would go from there. So I don't know, over the time we worked together, he might've had 
couple dozen brightly colored binders somewhere in his home. I only actually saw him face to face twice in the time that we worked together. Everything else was uh, was was done by phone. And um, Doctor, our our work was about seventy percent complete when he um, his his health took a turn for the worse. Uh, a, a couple of months passed. I was in communication with his daughter, and I knew that he was. Uh, I, I knew that 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 he was uh, not well. And uh, I was actually watching CNN when the news went across the bottom of the screen that Doctor Billy Taylor had passed away in December of 2010. Um, and I learned heard shortly after from his daughter, who, I mean, obviously news like that, you have so many people uh, contacting family members and such. And that was, you know, not the preferred way to for me to find out that that he had passed away. But she was very gracious and very kind and knew about our work, knew that his uh, memoir was underway and uh, knew about the brightly colored binders <laughs> in his home. And so I finished that book posthumously. I mean, after he had already passed away, I finished it the, the following spring. And um, the most important opinion about that book was the one I, I hope to get from his daughter, Kim Taylor Thompson. And um, when she read the, uh, the, the memoir and said that that was her father's authentic voice, I, that was the highest compliment. Mm. Um, so, um, so that was my second book. My third and fourth books are come from a different part of my life. Um, my third book was co-authored with uh, with a friend titled um, "Beneath the Heretic's Wings," um, and I can't remember the subtitle, but it was a a a book about the experience, a, a religious transformation that's captured in a Netflix film titled Come Sunday. Mm. So anyone who's seen that film, uh, it, it, it talks about the uh, transformation of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that went from being a very right-wing evangelical to being very open and inclusive and the fallout from that change. Um, and so I was a part of that congregation and I was one of those people who um, who remained with that congregation and uh, who took that journey toward inclusivity. And um, I and a, a friend put that in a memoir and talked about that journey. So that's my third book. It's not, it's you know, it, it's not anywhere in the sphere of what a music theorist writes <laughs> or what a scholar does. It's it's a memoir that just chronicles that. So if anyone's seen that film and uh, can read that as a companion to that because it can read that as a companion book to that film and get from the lens of people who were in the epicenter of that kind of how that happened. My fourth book, again, which is the other part of my life, um, it was started years ago before I am was in the job I'm currently in now was in living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When um, the campaign and first presidency of Barack Obama uh, sort of changed the conversation around race and dynamics of race, particularly in very red states. Mm -hmm. And um, seeing that unfold, I started in bits and pieces to write a book probably in 2012, 2011, some years ago, um, that was kind of my way of acknowledging 
that racism isn't always just racism. Racism is very often just ignorance and acknowledging that our educational systems are sort of pre-programmed to perpetuate that ignorance, particularly with uh, well-meaning white folks who just don't know. And so I wrote a book called You're Likely Not a Racist, Answers for Curious White People. Again, it you know there are bits and pieces in that of my experience as a music major in a predominantly white campus, um, but it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a it's a book of of questions and answers for white people who want to know things they might not have learned in school. So that was published in August 2021. So you see, I'm all over the place, Lydia. Um, and then the last the last thing that I I wrote uh, that I published that is of interest to this conversation is. And a wonderful book edited by Melissa Hogue titled uh, Expanding the Canon, Black Composers in the Music Theory Classroom. And I think that's a Routledge publication. It was just came out this year. Mm. And um, I have a piece there. Uh, I think uh, it, it and it's um, it's a, a book that is really um, the kind of book I've been waiting on since I was uh, an undergraduate uh, noticing my absence in the musical academy. And so Melissa Hogue, my colleague and a longtime colleague who uh, she and I are, know each other from AP Music Theory Circles, which is something else that was such a meaningful interaction. And she's written this wonderful, um, lovely book assisting folks who want to be inclusive in their teaching of music theory, assisting them with resources uh, uh, from black composers. And so in that, piece, I have written it really as a reflection of what it was like to be um, an African-American female student in the early 1980s and in the 1990s, pursuing a credential uh, which um, required that I learn content that excluded me. Right. And um, that journey is captured in that really short piece that um, frames, helps to frame Melissa Hoag's book. So that's it in a nutshell for the moment. <laughs> fantastic. I mean, again, thank you so much for for sharing and for all that fantastic scholarship, you know, that really chronicles what it is like to be a black woman in this space. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about like the the breadth of, of what you do and all of the scholarship in different areas is that's really how black women in the academy operate because of kind of the liminality of our existence in this space. That means the work that we do is also living in this third space where, you know, where we're taking our experiences, we're taking a history that, um, you know, isn't often told, is often intentionally repressed, right? And and breathing new life into it. Um, and so, like, I think a lot about, like, when I first started at Michigan, one of the things that I was really looking forward to there were several uh, Black women who are here at the university um, that I really wanted to study with, and none of them are in music theory, and none of them are in musicology, right? Like Naomi Andre, who was in women's and gender studies, and there's Kira Thurman, who's in German studies, Louise Toppin, who's in the voice department. So like all these women who are doing incredible scholarship, like musicology, um, <laughs> and publishing great analyses and and doing such interesting work especially louise who um is kind of operating uh 
in a future, in hopefully a future that I could see myself, uh, you know, in as far as doing great scholarship and and publishing scholarship, but also having this great performance career, um, as I am also a singer and do opera and am still actively taking lessons and performing. So, you know, there are all these women who are doing such interesting work, and then none of them are in the theory department, and none of them, and it's like... (laughs) Because we can recognize that in our particular field that we've chosen to to kind of land in, um, you know, the scholarship just kind of bleeds out into these other fields because that's the way that our identities move in this space. So just interesting to note um, about your first books. I actually had time to read it now that school is oh, over. Did. Yes. Oh, I was like, oh, I have to pre- listen. <laughs> I am nothing if not prepared for this podcast. So I had some time to read it. uh, And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I would love to talk about that. uh, The the last chapter on Tupac, um, Mm -hmm. because it was just such an interesting read of his music. Now, I'm a pretty late comer to hip hop and rap. um, Mm -hmm. Because I grew up, you know, really entrenched in classical music. um, But Obviously, the whole scope of the book, as you mentioned earlier, is about this blending of of sacred and secular music and the fact that in throughout the diaspora, there hasn't really been that distinction. And the fact that there is a distinction now is a result of, you know, Western influence and colonization and the way that uh, we talk about music today. But, you know, there was always kind of that blend of, you know sacred music um, and sacred text being a part of everyday life. And so the way that you talk about that with Tupac um, and also kind of the journey that you articulate um, and this really, like you're saying, kind of narrative writing style um, is you talk about, oh, you know, I just kind of stayed away from gangster rap like in the classroom because of, you know, certain connotations with it or whatever, or not wanting for it to be appropriate. And I would love for you to just tell the listeners about your experience studying Tupac and, and hearing your students uh, talk about Tupac, write about Tupac and, and how that came to be. Yeah, I think one of the things that you need in order to be an effective teacher is humility. Mm. There, there comes a point at which the ability of someone born in 1964, as I was, there comes a point at which you recognize the limit of your expertise, because there is a music that is a soundtrack of the experiential life of the people who create it. And mm. nobody can lay claim to that except those folks who are the subject of that experiential soundtrack. Said another way, back in the day, (laughs) you know, back in the day, I mean, I remember that, uh, you know, coming of age and Earth, Wind and Fire was Mm. the soundtrack of, you know, the the mid seventies, that first awakening of, you know, what it meant to be a, a part of this, you know, world in 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 mid 1970s early 1980s gary indiana where Mm. this was a predominantly black um you know school that you went to a predominantly black neighborhood that you lived in and um you know earth wind and fire was one of 
the biggest bands ever. And even mm-hmm. though I was, you know, Pentecostal in my upbringing and, would, and was told very young that I would go to hell if I would listen to secular music. I mean, there's sec- sec- secular music. There was no way to, you know, it's, it's like avoiding uh, a- avoiding this, the, the smell of good food. If you're in the neighborhood where it's cooking, you're going to smell it, even if mm-hmm. you're not supposed to. Play. So, um, you know, that experience in the early 80s, um, early 80s, Michael Jackson and early 80s Prince and early 80s uh, Whitney Houston, you know, those are the sounds of, um, of of my coming of age. And so there is a lens that I bring to the understanding of that music that is connected to the timestamp that links those expressions to the age that I was at those times. Similarly, folks who, you know, my 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 first connection to hip hop was, you know, 1979, uh, Rapper's Delight. Mm-hmm. And I was freshman in high school. And that was the first big rap um, hit was Rapper's Delight. And everybody uh, back in the day, you know, folks had boom boxes and they bought lots of batteries. And they would bring their boom boxes to to high school. And on any given day in 1979, 1980 at Westside High School in Gary, Indiana, you could hear simultaneously dozens of boom boxes playing Rapper's Delight, each at various points in the recording. So it was like a Charles Ives experience, only hip hop. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as as hip hop has evolved and, uh, you know, gone from the, um, you know, the, the early days of, of what was happening with Rapper's Delight to uh, its various evolutions becoming more reflective of, of the realities of African-American life uh, in all of its various flavors and, and colors and uh, shades and intensities. You fast forward beyond Rapper's Delight in 1979 to someone who's a well-baked adult in the 90s, um, mid to late 90s, that's not your music. That's mm. the music that's coming after you. So I could bring an academic lens to discussing that music, but it was my students who really were the experts in what that music was and what that music meant. And it was my students who had the ability to dislodge in my thinking any assumptions about what was then so-called gangster rap to look more deeply and to be more open and to be uh, become a student of this music. And so I'm grateful that I had the relationship with my students that I had at that time because they were willing to teach me and I was willing to learn. And what I learned was not just about Tupac as an artist and a poet um, and a, you know, political voice, a voice of activism, a a storyteller. But I learned about how this was their, this was the timestamp of their coming of age and that this was a voice and a perspective that needed to be held up in honor and dignity. And if I, as a scholar, could do that, then maybe it would shift the narrative that gangster rap um, so often suffered from at the hands of people who really didn't understand its uh, its importance, who really didn't understand this voice and this lens that that needed to really have an audience 
And so um, my students invited me into their world in a way that really not only humanized Tupac, but humanized Tupac's community, mm-hmm. and humanized Tupac's concerns, and really saw his brilliance mm. um, as a brilliance that that needed to be honored and brought to the table, brought to the um, brought into the academic conversation in a way with free of value judgment, but in a way that was open and a way that was instructive. Um, so. Uh, my students deserve all the credit. And, you know, the older I get, the more humble I am when new music emerges. And the more I recognize that I alone am not equipped to address and appreciate that music. I need the perspectives of the folks for whom that music serves as the coming of age timestamp. Wow, that's such a good point. Um, as far as when it comes to like ethnographic work like that, recognizing when you're coming to it as an outsider or lacking context or experience and, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping that in mind when you're speaking to the people who, for whom that music is designed or, you know, um, you know, how it's, how it's affecting them. Um, So thank you for sharing. Um, Really appreciate it. Let's finish up with, I would love to know about, so now I have not read your last book, um, but I would really love to hear about, again, it's interesting that you say like, oh, I write all these books that I'm like not qualified for, but like, "Mm, folks, we know she is, but like, you know, (laughs) I'm really interested again in, in the ways in which your scholarship is operating in all of these different arenas. Um, and it really helps to open up for me. Uh, hopefully not only do I have the possibility of, you know, ending up in, um, a music department as a professor of music theory or musicianship or something like that, but also, you know, I went to the American Studies Association conference, uh, this past year, and that was really great. I would be, um, thrilled to end up someday in an American studies department or in African American studies, as I'm also getting a certificate in African American studies and diaspora studies. Um, so I would love to just finish up with a discussion about your last book. Um, I'm really interested to know, like, the reception of, of how it was, you know, uh, received, especially since clearly you're directing it towards a white audience. And so I'd love to know some of the feedback that you've gotten about that book. It's been a super interesting journey. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Mm. Um, the title of the book for many African-Americans and many very super woke white people is very off-putting mm-hmm. because if you only read the title, then you have lots of assumptions about what I'm going to say. Sure. And for, <laughs> and, and for those folks who do that, well, then that's what you get, right? Um, but what I've, the experience I've had is that folks who read it, who may not have had another pathway to really understand what all the fuss is about. I mean, that's something that I, you know, one of one of the the moments that made me know that I that either I or somebody needed to write this book was when I was um, early in this process, suspecting that. Um, many 
wonderful white people are simply ignorant. I was on the treadmill at the Y where they have these television monitors on these default channels. You don't get to pick, you just have to watch what's ever showing. And um, there happened to be a, um, there happened to be a, a broadcast from Fox News uh, before me that was just the default um, on the display while I was while I was working out. And I got to get a glimpse of the regular diet of misinformation. Yeah. People are fed without even knowing that they're being fed a regular diet of misinformation. And these are generally very good people who want to be good citizens, who want to be good Americans, who want to do good things. And they don't have any way at all to discriminate between uh, fact and fiction. Mm. And they're not going to get a well-contextualized um, lecture on any of this because much of what we see in the news anyway are just collections of factoids, mm. much of it decontextualized. And so I heard what I was hearing in, in disbelief and thought, this is all wrong. <laughs> this, this is all wrong. Uh, uh, no, uh, these concepts are not divisive. This is honest history. Mm. So, I mean, that's what you hear a lot now where all of the uh, all of the political tsunami against supposedly CRT and divisive concepts. You see what's happening in Florida, where mm. Florida is essentially being re, re rewritten as a, a, a country uh, of its own from centuries ago with almost. Um, I mean, I could use many descriptors to describe the sadness that I feel around Florida. But the point is this. There are folks who have, whose educational backgrounds have not given them the foundation to understand that what the history of peoples of color teaches is not a set of divisive concepts. It's the honesty that you won't get anyplace else. Mm. And so when I wrote, uh, You're Likely Not a Racist, I collected the questions that I knew people would ask if there was a safe forum to get answers. Hmm. And I imagined that there were people in the privacy of their own curiosity, people who really didn't understand about the protests. They really didn't understand what Black Lives Matter meant. They really didn't get it. They didn't understand why George Floyd was in the news so much. They didn't understand why Breonna Taylor was in the news so much. They didn't get why Philando Castile was in the news so much. And so I tell that story in digestible bites in that book. And the impact has been really encouraging people who have aha moments, who have expressed a sense of surprise at what they didn't know. And mm. I've, I've done more, more speaking and many, many more engagements around that book than I could ever have possibly ima imagined to the extent that I really kind of have to manage my time because after all, I do have this other job. Um, I am not a full-time activist. I'm, I'm the Dean of the School of Music, but then when you are wrapped in this package, you live a, a life of activism, whether you want to or not. It's a, it's a part of your uh, it's it's a part of what the universe calls you to because the moment needs it. And so that reception has been very, has been very positive. Um, it's um, given me great reason to 
be careful about how I manage my time. Sure. <laughs> um, but it's it's my tiny, I call it my tiny contribution to world peace. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I imagine that um, being someone who creates a safe space for um, white people to ask those questions does, uh, would then demand a lot of your time because I'm sure people, you know, want to continue to pick your brain about it. And, and that's the thing is that you were just the conversation starter. And now the conversations get to continue as people get to engage with more and more um, scholarship by Black scholars um, to talk about their experiences in general and to talk about the, the Black experience in America and throughout the diaspora. So I imagine, yeah, that that it has opened up a glorious can of worms <laughs> that I'm sure many people are, are really thankful for. Yeah. You know, Lydia, it's, I don't think that I'm that unique because I think most of my colleagues who are people of color in the academy, whether it's music or some other field. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, most of my female colleagues of color who are in the academy yes. have similar stories to mine. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to some extent, all of them would, would say there is my discipline that I got my degree in. And then there's this whole other life that calls me to address questions around my identity. Yes. And it's just baked into, I think, what we do, you know, mm -hmm. so you can be, um, you can be an African-American music scholar or you can be an African-American scientist or someone who's in the medical field or someone who is, you know, uh, a, a historian or, or does English or sociology or who does mm -hmm. physics or whatever. And inevitably, the story is so typical that you find yourself doing this other work yes that you did not get a credential i was in. gonna say and un, unpaid oftentimes <laughs> uh, although i've gotten better at getting paid so there we go <laughs> but you know a lot of it is a labor of love you know mm -hmm. a lot of it is a recognition that if you don't tell your story who will yeah and so there is there is that very large component of this work that is unplanned unanticipated uh, unforeseen and yet it it bubbles up as being incredibly important because yes. it's really not about you at the end of the day it's it's about this world that you hope you can leave behind to the folks who are trotting this path you know when you're you know retired and on your way and maybe you know when you after you're dead there needs to be something left behind for those coming behind you that is better and that is is less fraught hopefully and that is promising and evidence that you did some good while you were here all right so that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast thank you so much to dr Teresa reed for being on the show you know, I have so many people on the show that I really, really admire, and Teresa has one of those careers that I really hope to emulate in my future, and her support is just invaluable to me. Check out the show notes for links to all of her work. 
If you have any questions, comments, feedback for me, if you want to talk to me about the show, if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for the show, or you want to come on the show as a guest yourself, please send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, hermusicacademia.com, fill out the contact form there. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening.